0: Wilmington, North Carolina. When I think about Wilmington, I immediately envision the blue waters of Carolina and Wrightsville Beach. I can smell the salt water and I can see the children playing in the sand. It's hard to imagine that Wilmington was the site of one of the deadliest massacres in North Carolina history. I'm Andre and this is the Redacted History Podcast. I've lived in North Carolina for the last 18 years. I've lived near Charlotte. I went to school in Greensboro. I now live in Durham. And on several occasions, I've been to Wilmington. And one thing you will instantly notice when you go to Wilmington, North Carolina, is that it is really, really white, noticeably. But it wasn't always like that. After the Civil War ended in 1865, lines were drawn in the dirt. And this line represented the divide between the political parties, Democrat and Republican and this divide can best be illustrated by the political landscape in late 19th century Wilmington, North Carolina. In July of 1865 in New Bern, North Carolina, 90 miles up the coast from Wilmington, former enslaved black people held a massive meeting in New Bern. This was the first political meeting in North Carolina's history of free enslaved people. A black freedman by the name of Abraham Galloway would give an impassioned and legendary speech to a raucous crowd of Black folk from Wilmington. The basis of this speech was that we as Black people wanted equal rights and protection. Freedmen of North Carolina arouse, shake off the bands, drop the chains, and rise in the dignity of men. The time has arrived when we can strike one blow to secure those rights of freedmen that have been so long withheld from us. Abraham Galloway was actually born into slavery in Wilmington and came of age there. He would eventually escape to the north and serve as a spy for the Union army. But now he was back, and his goal was to build a strong resistance against white supremacy. Galloway would give impassioned speeches, taunting white people, ridiculing them and mocking them for their intolerable treatment of freed black people. It was Galloway who would ultimately inspire the black transformation in Wilmington and cause a chain of events. Over a period of 11 years, beginning in 1863, Abraham Galloway would rise from slave to state senator. This was part of a catalyst for black people running for Republican political office, not just in Wilmington, but in North Carolina as a whole. For example, In the North Carolina 1889 House of Representatives, there were 12 black men, some from Wilmington. And between 1875 and 1899, North Carolina would send four black men to the US Congress. This was unprecedented. All of this was spearheaded by North Carolina ratifying the 14th Amendment in 1868, which resulted in the recognition of reconstruction policies freed black men were eager to exercise their right to vote and participate in North Carolina politics and support the Republican Party that had freed them. Democrats were enraged at this sudden change and loss of power in the state. You see, at the time, the Democratic Party, to most, was the party of white supremacy. Prior to the end of the Civil War, North Carolina had five straight Democratic governors and it was a Democratic governor named John Willis Ellis who urged the state to follow its southern neighbors and secede from the Union in May of 1861. During this period, the Democratic Party was the dominant political force in the southern states, and they sought to regain control of North Carolina from the Fusionist Coalition. Now, The Fusionist movement was an alliance between the Republican Party and the Populist Party, which had gained considerable support from African-American voters and white farmers. but. We'll talk about that a little later. White men would resort to petty tactics and intimidation to keep black men from voting. In 1868, the Ku Klux Klan in Wilmington staged a huge intimidation campaign days before the election of 1868. The Klan carted bones through the streets of Wilmington and going as far as to leave a skeleton in a back alleyway for some random black person to stumble upon. To suppress this blatant intimidation, Union soldiers and freed black folk throughout many Southern states would be organized into militias to mobilize if the time ever arose. Militias consisting of black men were never sent to Wilmington in deference and respect to the white citizens of the town. So our friend, Abraham Galloway, would form an informal militia of his own people, and they were ready to mobilize at any moment and face the Klan. In April of 1868, black men in Wilmington voted in droves. There's a story of one black man even riding an ambulance to the polls after having his leg amputated, all so he could vote. Statewide, the new constitution was approved by a comfortable margin, 93,086 to 74,086. The constitution guaranteed black men's voting rights with no literacy or property restrictions white men and Democrats alike were incensed. They screamed of voter fraud, screaming that Negroes were badly scared of earnestness. But we all know that wasn't the case. Abraham Galloway would die in September of 1870 at the very young age of 33. Newspapers speculated that the cause of death was fever and jaundice or perhaps rheumatism or a heart ailment. 6,000 people attended his funeral. He was very well known and respected. In about 12 years, Abraham Galloway was successful at setting the stage for black people in North Carolina to realize the power that they had—power in numbers, power in courage. Abraham was gone, but his spirit would live on in a man named Alexander Manley. Alexander Manley was born in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1866. He would go on to study printing and painting at Hampton from the fall of 1886 to the spring of 1887 only lasting a year. He would move back home and find himself unable to find work. So he set out for Wilmington, which he knew had a rapidly growing black middle class and many opportunities for black men. Alex found himself with a passion for progressive ideals and with his brother Frank, who also came to Wilmington, they decided to start a newspaper dedicated to black empowerment. They created The Record from an office above a saloon and directly across the street from a white newspaper. The Wilmington Star. In the mid-1890s, Alexander Manley printed an expose of deplorable conditions in the colored wards of the city hospital, forcing the White Board of County Commission to grudgingly order modest improvements. In an editorial in early 1895, Manley openly challenged the White power structure by pointing out that Black voters outnumbered White voters in the city. It was his first venture into the heated storm of racial politics in Wilmington it helped establish Manley in the eyes of white people as a troublesome black man who did not acknowledge his proper place. Alexander Manley wasn't the only outspoken black man in the city. Every year on Emancipation Day, black people would march through the city in celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation. This, along with many other African-American traditions and freedoms, made the white people of Wilmington even more enraged. Coming up next,
1: Chumbacasino.com.
0: Between 1868 and 1898, there was an ugly battle for control of the state of North Carolina, and the Democrats decided that they were going to play dirty, because of course they did. So we know that black people voted passionately for the party of Lincoln, the Republicans, and this massive wave of black votes tipped the scale and allowed the Republicans to take control of the state legislature from 1868 to 1870. Conservatives would mobilize heavily in 1876 though. Reconstruction would end a year later in 1877, and the writing was on the wall from that point on. The Democrats would take power, Once in power, Democrats maneuvered to undermine the newly won Black vote by eliminating the popular election of county commissioners. Instead, these commissioners were to be chosen by Justices of the Peace, who were in turn selected by the state legislature that was ran by Democrats. And right before the 1877 end of Reconstruction, the Democrats made sure that they were ahead of schedule and essentially suspended the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments in North Carolina and for the next 17 years, they would rule the state. But things would take a turn in the 1890s. Around this time, we saw the rise of the Populist Party, or the People's Party. They were a left-wing political party that emerged in the southern and western United States in the 1890s. At this time, there was a devastating recession happening, and the Democrats chose to alienate white farmers and laborers by spending money on and supporting the banks and other interests instead of the everyday worker. Tensions rose, and these farmers and poor whites had had enough. They wanted to align themselves with the Republican Party to form a political coalition called the Fusionists this was a major event this is a major turn of events because a lot of these white populists were literally just as racist as the democrats and weren't too excited about sitting at the same political table as black people but your own self-interest will make you act out of character the populace fusing with the republicans was truly unprecedented it was not happening anywhere else and was a huge risk but the risk paid off In 1894, the fusionists took control of the North Carolina legislature after 17 long years. This sent an earthquake ripple through the South, especially the white Democrats. White supremacy was at a major risk. By 1897, the fusionists dominated Wilmington's political landscape. They had a fusionist police chief and mayor and became the leading majority black city in the South, with a booming population of black people, totaling 56% of the city's population. There were 20,000 people in Wilmington, and 3,000 more black people than there were white people. Black men took over positions previously held by white people in Wilmington. Aldermen, magistrates, deputy sheriffs, police officers, and registers of deeds, amongst other things. But while the fusionists and black people of Wilmington were prospering, there were white men in the shadows, plotting. Joseph Daniels, a white man, was the editor and publisher of the News and Observer in Raleigh, the state's most influential daily newspaper. And Furnifold Simmons, that's a stupid name, was the state chairman of the Democratic Party, the party of white supremacy. These were two of the most powerful men in the state, and in March of 1898, they met to discuss what they called the Negro Problem. You see, The election of 1898 was quickly approaching in November, and they had to act fast. With white dominance challenged by blacks at the ballot box, Simmons was the man most directly responsible for leading the fight to eliminate the threat. He said, the Negro shall know his place. Many of those systemic and racist tactics that Democrats used in previous elections were orchestrated by Simmons. After their meeting, the two men concluded how they were going to solve the Negro problem they would need three types of men one men who could speak two men who could write and three men who could ride their speakers were orators like colonel waddell and charles acock daniels and other leaders of the democratic party would handle the writing and the writing would be done by none other than the red shirts the democratic party's armed vigilante militia Their grand plan rested in the thoughts of scaring and intimidating Black people out of political office and power by any means necessary. For the campaign, Simmons produced a 200-page handbook called the Democratic Party Handbook. The booklet was just a pile of racism, stating that Black votes were inherently inferior, blah, blah, blah. You get the point. They distributed this book to over a 1,000 white voters, urging them to vote for the white man's ticket. Here's a little excerpt from the handbook, and this is all quoted from Simmons. Quote, it is no fault of the Negro that he is here, and he is not to be punished for being here. But this is a white man's country, and white men must control and govern it. Under the benign rule of the Democratic Party during the long period it held unbroken power in North Carolina, the Negro race enjoyed peace and quiet and had the full protection of the laws. But there is one thing the Democratic Party has never done and never will do and that is to set the Negro up to rule over white men. Republican rule in the East means Negro rule, and Negro rule is a curse to both races. It is useless to tell the people of Wilmington that there is no danger of Negro domination. When they see the Negro policemen every day parading the streets in uniform and swinging their billy clubs, where you see the Negro policemen and Negro officers as thick as blackbirds," unquote. He had such a way with words. Now they were distributing this handbook nationwide to white people, however, there was one problem. Not everyone could read. Illiteracy was pretty common these days, so a solution was to make some pictures. They couldn't read, but they could decipher cartoons, political cartoons, and it was pretty easy to make fun of black people using illustrations. Minstrelry, blackface, stereotypes, everything was fair game and the cartoons had to be simple. Put out a newspaper with a cartoon of a black man chasing a white woman on the front page and you'll have a 1,000 angry white people in five minutes. The media was used at an alarming rate to disparage black people across the South. For instance, in August of 1897, Georgia newspapers reported an outbreak of lynchings, five in one week. Rebecca Felton, an older white woman in Georgia, was deeply, deeply disturbed by this. Not the lynchings, she didn't care about the lynchings. She was disturbed by the alleged rapes that caused the lynchings. You thought an old white woman in 1897 was not gonna be racist? Think again. Rebecca Felton was an outspoken white woman who thought that a consensual relationship between a black man and a white woman was impossible. And possibly, her most famous quote was this, if it needs lynching to protect white women's dearest possession from the ravening human beasts, then I say lynch a thousand times a week, if necessary. And many people heard that message loud and clear, including our friend, Alexander Manley. But how did Alexander Manley, a black man in Wilmington, get word of this message? Well, the Morning Star newspaper took Rebecca Felton's quote and used it to fan the flames of white supremacy in North Carolina. They published her quote in an August 1898 issue. The election was coming up and the Democrats were working overtime. The Democrats had been using the media all year to mock, taunt, and disparage black people. And Manley thought it was time to fight back. The Wilmington Daily Record, Manley's newspaper, had gone from a weekly output to a daily output and garnered a lot of attention and respect. He even had white people advertising their businesses in the Daily. He knew that responding to Rebecca Felton risked him losing his business or his life. But he knew he had to use his voice. On the morning of August 18, 1898, the Wilmington Daily Record published a lengthy yet concise editorial that responded directly to Rebecca Felton and her violently racist quote. It stated, A Mrs. Felton from Georgia made a speech before the Agricultural Society at Tybee, Georgia, in which she advocates lynching as an extreme measure. The woman makes a strong plea for womanhood, and if the alleged crimes of rape were half so frequent as is oftentimes reported, her plea would be worthy of consideration. The papers are filled often with reports of rapes of white women and the subsequent lynching of the alleged rapists. The editors pour forth volumes of aspersions against all Negroes because of the few who may be guilty. If the papers and speakers of the other race would condemn the commission of crime because it is crime and not try to make it appear that Negroes were the only criminals, they would find their strongest allies in the intelligent Negroes themselves. We suggest that the whites guard their women more closely as Ms. Felton says, thus giving no opportunity for the human fiend, be he white or black. You have your goods, you leave your goods outside of doors in the complain because they are taken away. Poor white men are careless in the matter of protecting their women, especially on the farms. Our experience among poor white people in the country teaches us that the women of that race are not any more particular in the matter of meetings with colored men than the white men with colored women. Meetings of this kind go on for some time until the women's infatuation or the man's boldness brings attention to them and the man is lynched for rape. Every Negro lynched is called a big, burly, black brute, when in fact, many of those who have thus been dealt with had white men for their fathers, and were not only black and burly, but were sufficiently attractive for white girls of culture and refinement to fall in love with them, as is very well known to all. Mrs. Felton must begin at the fountainhead if she wishes to purify the stream. Teach your men purity. Let virtue be something more than an excuse for them to intimidate and torture a helpless people. Tell your men that it is no worse for a black man to be intimate with a white woman than for a white man to be intimate with a colored woman. You set yourselves down as a lot of carping hypocrites and that you cry aloud for the virtue of your women while you seek to destroy the morality of ours. Don't ever think that your women will remain pure while you are debauching ours. You sow the seed, the harvest will come in due time. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm charged up right now. And as expected, this retort infuriated the white people of Wilmington. This was unprecedented. It is like they didn't know what to do because there had never been a black man in history that stood up to a white person. At least in their world, there had never been. Berner Fold Simmons, the leader of the Democratic Party, read what Manley had to say in the paper, but he encouraged the enraged white people, especially the elite ones, to hold off. It was only August. The election was in November, and that's when they would strike. So by publishing that editorial in the paper, as you could imagine, Alexander Manley had put his life in so much danger. Lieutenant Colonel Walker Taylor, a Democrat who commanded the Wilmington Light Infantry, recalled seven years later that, when that article appeared, it required the best efforts we could put forth that we could prevent the people from lynching him. Alexander Manley and his newspaper were being overrun with threatening letters telling him to get out of town. Leave Wilmington on the pain of death, one man wrote. Another man told Manley to apologize for that slander or face a lynching. One unsigned letter read, You are the sorriest scoundrel in North Carolina. If you are the sample of the nigger of Wilmington, you are all dirty rascals. I would advise you to go to Africa where you belong. Everyone is just so nice. But Manley would keep his head held high, and the Wilmington Daily Record would continue to be published. The seeds of the revolution, the insurrection, begun to blossom october 24, 1898 a white man by the name of colonel waddell stood on a wooden stage inside wilmington's Thalian hall alfred moore waddell as he was born was a north carolina politician and a white supremacist born in 1834 in hillsborough north carolina he served as a u.s representative on behalf of north carolina from 1871 to 1879 He served for four terms consecutively but was ousted when he lost an 1878 re-election campaign. He would then fall on hard times politically and financially, and 20 years later in 1898, he was itching for political relevance. A large crowd consisting of his supporters gathered to hear him speak. He was there to stoke the flames and the anger of white Democrats of Wilmington. He implored them to stand up and take back their privileges. He spoke with passion, and the white racists just ate it up. Quote, it is just and right and absolutely best and wisest for both races that the white people who settled this country and civilized it and who have done more for the Negro race than all the other peoples who have ever lived upon the earth should alone govern it. It is their country and they have a right to rule it. It will be absolutely suicidal for the Negroes to continue to resist this inevitable result. The next morning, word of Waddell's speech and the rally had spread far and wide very quickly. A journalist named Henry Litchfield West, who was dispatched to Wilmington by the Washington Post to report on an anticipated race war, described the city that week as an armed camp. He said Wilmington might be preparing for a siege instead of an election. The citizens are armed and make no secret of the fact. There is a new Gatling gun in the local armory, and 2,000 Winchester rifles are said, on reliable authority, to be distributed among private residences. In each block of the city is a lieutenant, while every six blocks is in charge of a captain. Each block has its place of refuge already selected, to which the women and children can flee for safety when the race war breaks out. The Democrats had been preparing. In the days leading up to the November election day, the black citizens of Wilmington were feeling intense anxiety. Was going to the polls safe? Would the white men attack them? Were their lives in danger? Election Day, Wilmington, North Carolina, November 8, 1898. Voters were out bright and early at around 7 a.m., walking towards the polls. There was a large amount of tension in the air. White people thought that the black people were going to go savage and burn buildings down and black people were traumatized from the hate and vitriol that they had endured all year. White newspapers advised black men not to vote. Under the headline, Gone to the niggers, the messenger published the lyrics to Rise Ye Sons of North Carolina, the anthem of the white supremacy campaign. Proud Caucasians, one and all, hear your wives and daughters call. Rise, defend their spotless virtue with your strong and manly arms. Rise and drive this black despoiler from your state. Red shirts rode around on horseback near the polls, firing their guns into the air occasionally. White gunmen were patrolling polling stations and literally turning black men away from the polls at gunpoint. Witnesses state that there weren't even 12 black men at the polls at any given time, when in the past, they had been at the polls in groups of hundreds. The red shirts and supremacists had also been trying to find Alex Manley because the word got out that he would be lynched. At 5 p.m., the ballots were to be counted. The white plan seemed to be working. The intimidation tactics were working. The next morning on November 9, 1898, news spread that the Democrats dominated the election. They had swept the state. They intimidated thousands of black men to not go to the polls and stay home. The messages of the violent Negro had persuaded thousands of whites to abandon the Republican party altogether. Democrats stuffed ballot boxes and ripped Republican ballots. Democrats now held 94 seats in the state's house to just 23 for Republicans and three for populists. In the state Senate, there were now 40 Democrats to only 7 Republicans and 3 Populists. In New Hanover County, where Wilmington is, the county flipped from a 960-vote fusionist majority in 1896 to a 500-vote margin for Democrats in 1898. With no opposition for county offices, Democrats replaced fusionists in the positions of sheriff, solicitor, coroner, surveyor, and judge. The Democrats were in complete control, and they weren't done yet. Coming up next, the insurrection begins.
2: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. Every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell
0: you a story. Now, let's talk about what happened during the insurrection itself and the events that occurred right before things really popped off. It's Wednesday, November 9th, 1898, the day after the Democrats swept the election of 1898 and the day before the insurrection was initiated. The white supremacists that made up the Democratic Party not only prepared to attack and take back the city from black people, but they also had some things to get off their chest. These stipulations and grievances were a part of what they called the White Declaration of Independence. It was essentially an ultimatum issued to black residents, community leaders, and elected officials in Wilmington, and they demanded that it be agreed to by 7.30 a.m. the next morning or else. Some of the proclamations and demands were as follows. We, the undersigned citizens of the city of Wilmington and county of New Hanover, do hereby declare that we will no longer be ruled and will never again be ruled by men of African origin. That the progressive element in any community is the white population, and that the giving of all of the employment to Negro laborers has been against the best interests of this county and city. That we propose in the future to give the white men a large part of the employment heretofore given to Negroes because we realize that white families cannot thrive here unless there are more opportunities for the different members of said family." It should be noted that the Democrats also demanded that Alex Manley, the editor of the Daily Record, was to leave the city within 24 hours after the issue of this proclamation. And if the demand is refused or if no answer is given within the time mentioned, then Alex Manley would be expelled by force. The next morning on Thursday, November 10th, 1898, it began. Contrary to popular belief, the demands of the White Declaration of Independence were actually agreed to by the Committee of Colored Citizens. This concession was also effectively communicated to the necessary parties by 7.30 a.m. in order to maintain and prevent violence. However, Alfred Moore Waddell, who was a former Confederate officer and vocal white supremacist, had other plans. His thirst for revenge and eagerness for white supremacy to rule the land overtook him he persuaded the bloodthirsty white mobsters waiting to attack the city that the Committee of Colored Citizens had actually failed to respond to their demands from the day before. He also lied to, ignored orders, and purposely undermined the authority of the officers and leaders around him put in place to maneuver and orchestrate the mass of white men readying themselves to fight. So, with Waddell's green light and false command and the bubbling rage of the growing mob, the insurrection kicked off. Led by Waddell himself, over 200 Democratic white supremacists marched to the office of the Daily Record with their rifles and pistols in tow. A group of the insurrectionists helped secure and surround the building while another group of others entered. They quickly discovered that Alexander Manley and all his staff members of the Daily Record had fled. Reports say that Manley fled north with his mother and family members the day before the election due to the growing fear for him and his family's lives. Growing preparations for him to be lynched quickly made their way to him in his inner circle, so an unidentified friend of Manly, rumored to be a man named Reverend Robert Strange, gave him $25 and the necessary password for checkpoints to get out of the city, and he did that quickly. The insurrectionists proceed to break and rip apart the furniture, the printing press, and any other fixtures they could find in the Daily Records building. A couple of the mobsters located a container of kerosene in a closet during the commotion and they doused the wooden floors with it. The oil from several lamps in the building were also emptied onto the floor as well. Soon after, a match was struck, and in no time at all, flames engulfed the building almost completely. While the Daily Record building was just one of the many buildings burned during this massacre and insurrection, the magnitude and impact of its destruction was more significant than one might think. The Daily Record wasn't just a newspaper. It was a means of communication for the entire black community in Wilmington, and it allowed them to stay informed of key information and events. It served as a beacon of unity and entity that helped the community organize with one another. Its loss was huge, and it was only the start of this black mecca's untimely demise. But let's keep journeying through the day of this riot, shall we? The flames quickly jumped from the Daily Record building to the next building, and the next building, The embers from the burning buildings wafted from one property or home to the next and even led to a nearby church st luke's ame church and that caught fire too in the midst of all this chaos someone sounded the city alarm as a cry for help the nearest firefighter brigade was the cape fear steam fire engine company and they were alerted of the growing fires they made their way to the daily record and other nearby buildings to put the flames out but they were met with gunfire from all angles Despite them being used for target practice, they managed to douse the traveling embers with water and save a lot of the surrounding structures near the Daily Record, including the church. The Daily Record, however, did not have as fortunate of a fate. The whole entire second floor was destroyed, and all that remained after the flames were put out was a burned back wall and the charred printing press. One of the many stops made that day of the insurrection was the City Hall of Wilmington. It's not confirmed when exactly this pit stop was made, but it was here that the Mayor of Wilmington and Board of Aldermen were forced out. As each current elected official was forced to resign on the spot, a new one from the Democratic Party was immediately installed in their place. Can you guess who it was? It was Alfred Moore Waddell. He was the new Mayor of Wilmington, the man who arguably started it all and once threatened to fill the Cape Fear River with black bodies. These definitely sound like the words and actions of a man fit to lead, right? Yeah, right. Word traveled fast around the city that the violence had ensued and was taking place. But one place it made its way to of great concern was the Sprunt Cotton Compress in the nearby town of Brooklyn, about three-quarters of a mile from where things had started. The Sprunt Cotton Compress was Wilmington's largest employer and was vital to the city's economy. It provided cotton that was shipped to Europe and the Caribbean, and it also provided jobs for countless black workers in Wilmington. The compress's owner was a known white supremacist named James Sprunt, who had a sort of paternalistic attitude towards his black workers and employees. And since he felt like he owned them, he felt responsible for their well-being. But we know this is more than likely to protect his interests and profits, not because he actually cared. Yeah, you you get it. The sound of the fire alarm that had been rung and the rising smoke in the distance was heard and noticed by several workers, and they could also hear the white mob jeering and cheering. This concerned them as they had also began to hear rumors of white men destroying their homes and businesses, even though only the daily record had actually been burned at this time. Some of the workers' wives and children even made their way to the compress to warn their husbands of their homes being in danger. Sprunt attempted to calm the workers and encourage them to continue their work since he vowed to protect them. But this just wasn't going to cut it for many of the people. Some left to go retrieve their families and help them get to safety, while others stood outside the compress looking and waiting anxiously for what was to come. Although this gathering of concerned black men was just that, the mobsters falsely heard that they were gathering to fight back at them. So a large number of white supremacists made their way to the Sprunt Cotton Compress for their next standoff, with the hope for a fight. The white and black men eventually came face to face, and of course, tensions rose. The white men eagerly awaited orders from their superiors to open fire on the black men. All the black workers truly wanted was to get the safety into their families, not to take part in any fight or violence. But the wrath of the white supremacists was rapidly descended upon them and looking them in the eyes. While this was all going on, Sprunt had two of his employees scan and patrol the neighborhoods and nearby areas his black workers lived in. When they returned to confirm that Brooklyn was not on fire, the black workers were calmed and escorted in small groups back to their homes. In that same moment, the white mob coincidentally decided to abandon the compress and make its way to its next stop, another area where it was rumored that a group of black men were gathering to give them a fight. The crisis and potential blood shed at the Sprunt Cotton Compress may have been averted, but the Democrats were still on the prowl that day, looking for any reason to pull their triggers and make use of their weapons. As the day went on, and as these stops were made in the city of a battle, the mob of white supremacists had grown from just a couple hundred men to 2000. The destruction of the city continued, including several Black-owned businesses, homes, and churches. The brutality and destruction quickly began to spill over from the city streets to the neighborhoods of Wilmington, and the residents of the city soon became the focal point of the attack. As the morning and afternoon rolled on, neighborhoods were attacked and residents were killed on the spot and disposed of in the nearest river. It was nothing but pure vitriol and hate that fueled these white gunmen as they paraded around the city looking for the next black person's life to take. The exact number of fatalities from this horrific day are unclear, but it is believed that over 60 people were killed and some researchers and historians estimate that several hundred black people were killed. The killings were senseless, brutal, and more inhumane than you can imagine. The residents that did manage to escape the violence hid in nearby swamps and cemeteries in the coming days, while thousands more fled Wilmington. To never return. In the days following the insurrection, newspapers and booklets were printed declaring what a glorious victory this was for the Democrats and even went as far to depict the black residents as the aggressors and instigators of the violence that occurred. After this traumatic event, there was never a black majority of population in the city ever again. The black powerhouse that Wilmington was renowned for being was now a thing of the past. I have lived in North Carolina for almost two decades, and you will be hard-pressed to hear anyone speak of the Wilmington Insurrection. It was never taught in our schools or written in books, and if you are able to find it in a book, the history is revisionist. The white supremacists won. Black families fled in droves. Black people that stayed behind were executed. Colonel Waddell became the unlawful mayor of Wilmington and stayed in that role until 1906. The cities framed the insurrection not as a coup, but as a return to law and order. Responsible government. A white supremacist named Josephus Daniels even held a parade called Victory, White Supremacy, and Good Government. Black families had fled to the woods and the swamps near Wilmington during the takeover, and after a few days, they got up from hiding, traveled back to Wilmington, gathered whatever belongings they could, and left Wilmington never to return. When the editors of The Messenger learned that some blacks were considering returning, they published a warning in the form of an anonymous letter signed with an X, and it said, If the occurrences that day meant anything, they meant that the white men were determined to govern this city and county, and should any disturbance arise, the 10th of November will prove to be child's play to what the consequences will be to the Negroes. By the end of April 1899, it was estimated that over 2,800 black people had left. The Wilmington insurrection inspired white supremacy across the South. These black people were made an example out of they robbed black men of the right to vote and shot them in the streets. After 1898, North Carolina's white supremacists suppressed the black vote through poll taxes, literacy tests, violence, intimidation, whites-only Democratic primaries, and voter roll purges. The number of registered black voters in North Carolina quickly plunged from 126,000 in 1896 to 6,100 in 1902. North Carolina black people would not vote in significant numbers again until the 1960s in the civil rights movement. There would not be another black US representative from North Carolina for 91 years until 1992. As for Wilmington, well, the insurrection changed that city forever. And you can see that change personified in the city today in 2023 for all the people out there that say slavery and racism was so long ago and has no effect on today. I want you to go to the University of North Carolina Wilmington's website and tell me what their demographics are. The black population plunged in Wilmington over the next century and never recovered. In 1898, it was 56%. Today, the black population in Wilmington is about 18% with a 71% white population. Until about two years ago, there were parks and elementary schools in Wilmington named after the insurrection. There was an auditorium named after the white supremacist and insurrectionist, Charles Aycock, on the campus of UNCG, my alma mater. There was a high school in Charlotte named after the white supremacist, Zebulon Vance. And these names have since changed, but only because of intense public pressure during the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. The legacies of these insurrectionists stayed intact for over a century and would have stayed intact for another century had we not said anything. North Carolina, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Until next time. This episode was written and researched by Kimberly White, Noel McIntosh, and Andre White. It was recorded and edited by Andre White. If you like this episode, be sure to go over to Instagram, tag at redacted History underscore in your story, and tell us what you thought. Also, go there and tell me what's your favorite episode of the Redacted History Podcast. Don't forget to leave a like, a rating, and review whatever platform you're listening on. Tell a friend, your aunt, your grandma, your third cousin twice removed. Anything helps. I appreciate y'all. If you want to support the podcast in a different way, consider going over to the Patreon and subscribing to the Redacted History Patreon. It goes a long way, and you can find that in the show notes below.